About that time, so about the time, remember back up to Acts 30, Paul and Barnabas have gone to Judea, bringing a gift to the church there. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you, follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gateway. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, the privilege we have of gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray now that your word would have its effect on our hearts. Lord, may no one in here leave without you sending your word to accomplish its mission for their lives, for the life of this church. Lord, build your church, we pray. May we hear what you want to say to us this morning. Pray these things through Christ's name. Amen. Summertime, thought I'd open a little story about baseball. Yogi Berra, the well-known catcher for the New York Yankees, and Hank Aaron. Who in here knows who I'm talking about? Okay, two superstar baseball athletes. Hank Aaron was at that time the chief power hitter for the Milwaukee Braves. And in 1958, the teams were playing against one another in the World Series. And as usual, Yogi was keeping up his ceaseless chatter, intending to pep up his teammates on the one hand and distract the Milwaukee Braves hitters on the other hand. As as Hank Aaron came to the plate, Yogi tried to distract him by saying, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. Aaron didn't say anything, but when the next pitch came, he hit it into the left field bleachers. After rounding the bases and tagging up at home plate, Aaron looked at Yogi Bear and said, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> Hank Aaron knew what his purpose was at the plate. He wasn't going to be distracted by anyone or let anything get in the way of doing what he intended to do. Purpose, purpose matters. It matters in baseball, it matters in life, and as we'll see in our text, it matters to God. In fact, God has an ultimate purpose for everything he does. Before we look at Acts 12, we're going to briefly look at this reality that God has an ultimate purpose for everything he does. God's ultimate purpose, what the Bible tells us God's utterly consumed with, is the publication of his glory. When he steps up to the plate, that's what he's about. The publication of his glory. It's the publication of the totality of his perfection and greatness. Making his glory known is God's desire above all Else, the glory of God, we know, is the supreme goal of God. At the beginning of creation, when he created everything, it's the same at the climax of creation when he'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth. What, what moves God most deeply, his strongest desire, his preeminent passion, what he is most zealous about, what motivates God to do anything more then what he does is that his glory would cover the earth and the seas. So Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims the work of his hands. It's what the seraphim in Isaiah 6 gathered around the throne of God, sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of of his glory. God's goal in all of creation 
is his glory. That's why Paul exclaims in the book of Romans, chapter 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God's goal is God's glory. If that's true and the Bible says it is, then what exactly are we talking about here? I think that's helpful to determine what is God's glory. Because the glory of God is the supreme goal of God, and because the glory of God is so fundamental to the Bible and for how we live our lives, we must define what it is. So here's a definition John Piper gives us. He says, the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. It's the broadcasting to all of creation, the beauty and excellency of his perfections. To glorify God is to declare, it's to draw attention to, it's to advertise his glory with our lives. So, if the goal of God is the glory of God, then everything God does, we know he does for his glory. What does this mean for our lives, you may wonder? How does that touch humanity? First, What it means is that if what God does is done for his glory, then we know it will also be done for our good. As Pastor Keith mentioned, God works together all things for the good of those who love him. Romans 8 says. Just briefly, guys, this is the reason. This is the reason the Christian will never sink in the midst of suffering. Think about it this way. Okay, if the saints have a losing season coming up, right? Talk to people, well, the saints aren't doing that great this year. No, they're not. But you know what? You remember back a couple years ago we won the Super Bowl? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, we won the Super Bowl. That tells us, you know, the saints, they got some goods. They've won the Super Bowl before. What does that do for a saints fan? Kind of helps you bounce a little back, right? Like, yeah, okay, there's some hope. For the Christian, in the midst of suffering, this is our anchor that holds us down. Christians are like a buoy in the ocean, right? Waves will come crashing down. We may go under for a minute. But because God does all things for his glory and our good, We'll come back up. We'll float. God's committed to that. His glory is tied to it. It's an anchor for Christian. He seeks his own glory, not just for himself, church, but for the good of his people. The good of God's people is tied to God's glory. He's committed to his glory, therefore he's committed to our good. We'll talk more about that. As well. Secondly, what it also means for our lives. If God's goal is God's glory, then shouldn't that be our goal as well? I mean, shouldn't that be our purpose if this is God's purpose in all of life? Is not that what God created us for in the first place? To do everything for the glory of God. It seems to be Paul's conclusion in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Right there we read, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 
What Paul is saying is everything, even those very mundane, normal routines of life, are to be done to the glory of God. That's, that's the bottom line in all of our Christian living. Every time we step up to the plate, it's swinging for the glory of God. It's the most important thing in all of the universe. And the question we need to consistently ask ourselves is, is this the most important thing to us? Or are we living for the glory of ourselves? That's the choice every one of us face every day of our lives, isn't it? Am I going to be self-centered today? Everything's going to orbit around me? Or am I going to be God-centered today? My life will orbit around God. I love the theme of youth camp orbit. That's the question we face every day of our lives. Will I be the hero of the storyline today? Or will God be the hero? Will God be great today? Or will I be great today? What will I go after with my life today? What will prompt my elation? What will arrest my attention? What will I prize? If you're not sure, look at how you spend your time, your money, Consider what your mind thinks about, what makes you happy or content in life. Your answer to this will reveal whose glory you are chasing after, yours or God's. Make no mistake. Guys, we will spend and be spent chasing after glory. The question is, will it be our glory or will it be God's. God wired us for glory. It draws our attention. It stirs our affections. Paul Tripp wasn't able to put it in your notes. I think I should have it on the screen here. He calls us glory junkies. Look at his quote here. It says, admit it. You're a glory junkie. That's why you like the 360 degree between the legs slam dunk. Or that amazing hand beaded formal gown. Or the seven layer triple chocolate mousse cake. It's why you're attracted to the hugeness of a mountain range or the multi-hued splendor of a sunset. You were hardwired by your creator for a glory orientation. It is inescapable. It is in your genes. It's in every one of us. We go after glory. We're all glory junkies. We all live for it. As Dave Harvey says in his book, Rescuing Ambition, glory grabs us. It grabs us. You're not going to sit in your car at the Grand Canyon and look in the rearview mirror at yourself. You're not going to go to Saints game and just look on your phone. Well, some of you might look on your phone the whole time. (laughs) Glory grabs us. It arrests our attention. The question is, whose glory grabs you? Whose glory grabs you, God's or yours? And and this is where I believe God wants to bring us to in Acts 12 this morning. There's a reason we're going through this. Because in Acts 12, God shows us this. He shows us why every day we must choose to live for his glory and not our own. In fact, Acts 12 is a story. It's a story about what happens if you choose to live for your glory Versus what happens when you choose to live for God's glory. Simply put, God's message in Acts 12 is this. If you live for your glory, you will lose. If you live for God's glory, 
you will win. It's the message of Acts 12. There's two simple points in your outline. Point one. If you live for God's glory, sorry, if you live for your own glory, you will lose. In other words, guys, you will face, you'll face judgment. Divine judgment. We see this reality exemplified in Herod's life. Right away in the opening verses, what's going on? We see real clearly that this This is a story about Herod versus God. It's a story about the glory of man versus the glory of the one who created man. Whose glory you think is going to win out? Whose hand is going to carry the day here? You remember the opening verses of chapter 11? The hand of the Lord was with the disciples in Antioch. And many were turning and being saved. Well, here in chapter 12, we see more hands at work. But this time, it's the hands of Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who had all the infants slaughtered in Bethlehem around the time Jesus was born. That's who Herod Agrippa is. And we see what Herod's violent hands have done to the church in Jerusalem. They killed the apostle James. James, as in Peter, James, and John, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the 12 apostles, one of his earliest followers, is dead. He's probably beheaded by the sword. Herod's violent hands killed James, and, and we see that when Herod saw that this pleased the Jews. What did he go and do next? He goes and arrests Peter. He puts him in prison. When he saw that this made him popular and powerful, he wasn't stopping at James. I'll go get the other leader. I'll get Peter. Let's put him in prison. So he arrests Peter. He probably would have killed Peter that very day if it were not for the sacred Jewish holiday of the Passover. Right, we read that there, the unleavened bread. Since Herod, since Herod wants power and popularity amongst the Jews, he, he waits to kill Peter after the Passover. That's going to be his plan. When all the people will be able to gather around and see just how powerful and wonderful and glorious he is as he triumphs over the lives of the claimed followers and famous followers of Jesus. The desire for self-glory, for popularity led Herod to oppose Christianity, which ultimately, we will see, put him on a collision course with God himself. A self-centered life uh, is an irrational life because it is directly opposed against God. How, how stupid of Herod, right? What's he thinking? I mean, none of us, whatever, oppose God, right? I mean, we, we may not persecute other Christians, but might we all have desires in our heart for our own glory? Selfish desires 
for our own celebration. Might we, like Herod, have selfish desires to be admired and praised? Might we crave to look good and great before others and aspire to receive praise from them? If so, if so, we must be careful. Such desires are not only stupid, but they put you in direct opposition to God. And to put it mildly, God's, he's not cool with that. He's not cool with us coming and tipping our hat on Sunday and then going and living our own lives and doing what we want to do throughout the rest of the week. And he's not mocked. What we sow, we will reap, as we will see in the life of Herod. Okay, let's let's pick back up with the theme of Herod's glory versus God's glory. Look at verses 18 through 22 there in your Bible. We just read those. We see Herod's living to be seen as popular. We also see here he's living to be seen as powerful. Here's how he's living for his own glory. He's living to be seen as powerful. Peter Peter has just miraculously escaped from prison. The fact that he's missing causes no small stir. What does Herod do in response? I mean, people know. Hey, did you hear? You hear how Peter just escaped prison? I mean, there are guards and everything. You know, the conclusion is probably Herod's just pretty weak here. So what does Herod do in response? Herod refuses to look weak and powerless. He puts... He puts the guards to death. He executes them. He must win at all costs. See, Herod must be seen as great. It's not enough for Herod to be king of Jerusalem. Cravings for power are never satisfied. They always want more. And when there's a power shortage, anger ensues, bloodshed Occurs. Whatever stands against us getting what we want must then be removed. Whether it be through the act of murder like we see happening to the guards. Or maybe the spewing of hurtful words. Or maybe just ignoring the other person. Either way we all experience outrage in our hearts when we, when we don't get our way. And if not dealt with by us. We're going to see that God will deal with him. God will deal with us. Herod does not repent of his anger and arrogance, as we see. And what happens is he loses. Let's look at verse 20. His fumes of fury follow him wherever he goes. Herod, he says he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He was angry with them. These were coastal cities that depended on Herod's breadbasket in Galilee. Okay, they, they needed grain to make bread and... They couldn't produce the grain on the coast, and so they depended on Herod to bring that from Galilee to them. They needed food. Herod was angry with them. So their food supply is in jeopardy here. So the people came to please him. They came to exalt him. Make him feel that he's powerful in order to assuage his wrath against them. That's what we see happening. 
Manipulation, people pleasing, that's what happens when we stop trusting God. And Herod loves it. He loves to be seen as powerful and to be depended upon and praised. That's what we see happening here. He loves, he loves to, to be praised, and if he's not, he's going to do whatever it takes to receive that, whether it's killing Christians or giving a showy, sparkly speech. Look at verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and he made an oration to them. The historian alive at this time, Josephus, you guys have probably heard his name before, famous historian, the early church, he comments on this occasion. He says this, Herod was clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous. And he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously, ra- was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. No wonder the people shout in verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod in all his godlike pomp receives the praise that's due to God alone. Herod wanted to be saw, seen as more than just a guy who held sway over the food supply. He wanted ultimate significance. He wanted to be God. Before we go any further, let's zoom back out. In craving power and praise, whose glory is Herod living for? We know his own, right? It's why he killed James. It's why he arrested Peter. It's why he killed the guards. That's why he receives the praise that's due only to God. In church, it's why Herod loses. Herod, Herod loses. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod did not give God the glory, and because of that, God struck him dead. He was, he was eaten by worms, a disease of some type sent by God, probably heartworms, and it, it destroyed him. Herod conquered many, but we see he could not conquer his own pride. It led to his destruction. God conquered it for him. It's the greatest sin in the world for you and me to refuse to give God the glory he deserves. And rather, 
live for our own selfish desires. God, God made us to worship him and to honor him. He made us for his glory, and he will not share that glory. Right? Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord. There is no other. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise. For us to ignore God, for us to push him to the side of our life, is to blindly put ourselves in grave danger. I mean, this is what you're doing. There should be some danger lights going off right now. The late Walter Cronkite, he's a broadcast journalist and news anchor for CBS Evening News, and known at one point in his career as the most trusted man in America, recalls the following incident from a day of sailing with his wife. He says this, Sailing back down the Mystic River in Connecticut and following the channel's tricky turns through an expanse of shallow water, I'm reminded of the time a boatload of young people sped past us here, its occupants shouting and waving their arms. I waved back a cheery greeting, and my wife said, Do you know what they were shouting? Why, it was, Hello, Walter! Hello, Walter! I replied, No, she said. They were warning us, low water, low water. Pride blinds us to thinking that life is about ourselves. And we don't even see the collision course we're on. Don't even see it coming. So how kind of God to warn us this morning through Luke. That if you keep exalting yourself and keep living for your own glory, you will come to a dead stop. You will face the judgment of God and and you will lose. Life, Life is about living for God's glory. It's, it's not about living for our glory. It's, it's not about being seen as important or significant or great or being liked. It's about making God look great. When that's your aim and that's your ambition, and that's your goal, you will win. You will win. Which is point two. If you live for God's glory, you will win. Here's why. You will not face divine judgment, but you will be divinely rescued. Back up with me to the opening verses again. James has been martyred for his faith. Peter has been arrested. And according to verse 4, Herod intends to bring Peter out for public execution after the Passover. And what we see unfold in the following verses is a remarkable act of deliverance. Let's pick up in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. What's what's Peter doing? He's snoozing. He's asleep. I mean, he knows what happened to James, right? He knows as soon as Passover's over, he's going to face his own execution, right? He's asleep in the midst of that. Does, does he know some sort of top secret information? And why is he at peace in the deep sleep? Knowing that tomorrow awaits the day of his execution. I mean, was it because this wasn't his first rodeo being in prison for his faith? Right? We've seen before God miraculously rescued Peter from prison. Maybe it made him think he could hap- that could happen again, so he'll just go and get some shut eye. Or might Peter know what James knew as well? Did Peter remember the words Jesus spoke to his friend James when he walked the earth with him? If you'll recall in Matthew 20... Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem for him to be crucified. He's just told them that he is going to be crucified. And then, out of nowhere, kind of immediately we see the mother of James and John run up to Jesus. Jesus, can, can my two sons sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? What did Jesus say to her? He answered in 20, verse 22, you do not know what you're asking. He's looking at all his disciples. He says this, are you, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Referring to his crucifixion. They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. James and John, you will be persecuted for my name, is what he told them. Is, is, is Peter somehow seeing God's sovereignty in the midst of this suffering and his, his coming persecution? And is that what's bringing him comfort at this time? Is that, is that what puts him to, to a peaceful rest right now? Does it fuel his rest? Is that that what helped James face the sword? Is that what comforted James' mom on the day she learned her son had died? Or the church, the day they learned that James had been killed and Peter arrested? If so, how did they know that that sovereign purpose of God was good? I mean, James is dead. And we're not skipping over that. James is dead. So what what brings comfort? What what inspires the prayers of the church? What brought this peaceful sleep Peter seems to have? How, How could he sleep at a time like this? We'll soon see why. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. 
And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. So we see God sends an angel to rescue Peter. The angel wakes Peter, takes the chains off his hands, leads him past the guards and into the, iron, into the city, past the iron gate, and it leads him to freedom. Throughout this whole time, Peter's basically sleepwalking. He's not fully come to his senses, we read. I mean, look, the angel's like telling him what to do, like, you know, like a parent does to their child. Like, hey, get up. All right, get up. Okay, put your clothes on. Okay, good. Now put your shoes on. Okay, good. Now put your cloak on. Now get your jacket. Okay, now follow me. Let's go. Right? I mean, Peter's like, in the day, he's like, well, what's going on here? He thinks he's dreaming. Surely we can all relate to Peter there, right? I mean, this isn't some mystical, like Peter's floating on clouds out of prison. He's just kind of out of it. He's just walking out of prison. I know sometimes, I know at one time, actually, I I asked you to fan a, a list of questions in my sleep. Had no idea. Didn't remember the next day. She asked me what I was thinking. I started laughing out loud and fell back asleep. Just, <laughs> right? I mean, we all, we all experience this. Peter's, Peter's just out of it. He's in a daze. He's, he's sleepwalking. And the angel leads Peter out of prison. And I love what happens next. Look at verse 10. They passed the first and second guard and came to the iron gate leading, in, leading out into the city. And listen to what it does. It opens for them on its own accord. This isn't secret agent Peter here busting out of prison. His chains, he didn't have some secret key, kind of, they fell off. He was led past the guards by an angel. The iron gate to the city, like the big one, to the city, opens on its own accord. Peter's not some super ninja here escaping prison. He's got, in fact, he's got nothing to do with it. He's got nothing to do with this escape. Then when Peter comes to his senses in verse 11, he's able to surmise what's exactly happening. He then goes to Mary's house where the church was gathered. This is John Mark's mom. We're going to hear more about him in the coming chapters of Acts. And when Peter knocks on the door of the house, verse 13 says a servant girl named Rhoda came to the door. And hearing Peter's voice, she freaks out and she runs to tell everyone, hey, hey, Peter's at the door. And they all think, hey, you're crazy. That can't be true. And she said, no, 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 it's true. He said, well, maybe it's his angel. Whatever. All Peter knows is that it's harder for him to get into a prayer meeting than it is for him to bust out of prison. (laughs) Finally, Peter gets in. And in verse 17, it says this. Motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Why could Peter sleep peacefully? Where did the strength come from for James to face his martyrdom? Because they know, church, that our God is a God of rescue. He is a God of rescue. 
I don't mean the the get out of jail free kind of rescue we see here. That rescue and hundreds of other rescues maybe that you've experienced or that you've seen in the Bible, read about in the New Testament, are all pointing to one great rescue. It's the rescue of Jesus Christ. Our God is a God. He sees people in their sin. He sees people in their plight, in their suffering. And our God moves toward them. He rescues them. That's what what Luke's getting at here. That's why he uses the language that he uses here. The idea of Peter being brought out at night from prison, the demand to get up quickly, the iron gate opening, Herod being struck down, does this language remind you of anything? It should remind you of Exodus 12. The Passover. When God came at night and delivered his people out of Egypt. Striking down the firstborns of all those not covered by the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And eventually, striking down Pharaoh himself. And when, when does Luke say Acts 12 is taking place? The Passover. What are they celebrating? Where are all the Jews celebrating while Peter's busting out of prison? The Passover. It's extraordinary irony here. The Jews in Jerusalem, they don't even realize that as they celebrate Passover, they miss God delivering Peter from prison. They miss what it's all about. They miss that Exodus 12 points to the great rescue of Jesus Christ whom they murdered. They miss that Jesus came And he broke the chains that held us captive to sin and darkness. And he delivered us from the clutches of Satan. And that Jesus transferred us into the kingdom of light. They missed that Jesus Jesus was the real Passover lamb whose blood propitiates the wrath of God. It turns it away from us and it, it secures our forgiveness. They missed that. They missed that it's only by the blood of Christ that you will be rescued. Peter was asleep. He knew the greatest rescue had already come for him. As did James. And because of that church, all they wanted to do with their lives was glorify God. Whether in life or in death, it didn't matter. Life wasn't about them anymore. They've been rescued. Whether in prison or at a prayer meeting, didn't matter. This was not their home. They didn't live for earthly power or fame or greatness. Who wants that when you have Jesus? Who wants to be praised when you can live the rest of your life praising the one who paid our debts and raised our lives up from the dead? We all deserve judgment like Herod received. We all do. Peter did. James did. I did. You did. We all deserve that. 
We're all guilty of pride. We're all guilty of craving the praise of men. We're all guilty of wanting to be seen as powerful and great. Therefore, we all deserve Herod's fate. We all deserve divine judgment. Friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to receive that judgment for us. He came to stand condemned in our place. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God so that we don't have to. And if you'll have Jesus, then God's wrath will pass over you. It will not fall on your head. Every sin, every sin will be punished. The question is, will it fall on your head or will it fall on the Savior's instead? Will you be struck down by God or will you trust in the one who was struck down on your behalf on the cross. On the cross, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath of God. Listen to what he does for the self-centered and the proud and the arrogant. Listen to what Jesus does. Philippians 2, 6 and 8. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Catch that. In order to rescue you, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you hear his love for you? He takes on the form of a servant and he humbles himself. Coming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To The glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord, church. No one one else. God God is in sovereign control over all things. And he's working them together for our good and his glory. We know it's for good. We see here, God did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son. How will he not also work together all things in your life for good? 
That's, that's what we fall back on. That's the anchor of our souls. That's what gives us hope. And if you'll be found in Jesus, if you'll be rescued by him, you will ultimately share in his triumph. And who knows? Maybe in this life, you'll also have the privilege to be persecuted for his name. Either way. If you have Jesus, you'll be rescued. He wins. Every time, he wins. God did not score a touchdown with Peter and fumble with James. <laughs> that did not happen. God never fumbles. He, he chose to release Peter. And he chose to sustain James through martyrdom. But that's not the main point here. The main point is that though they deserved God's judgment, God chose to rescue them in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. Though we deserve God's judgment, God chose to rescue us through Jesus Christ. Can it be? Acts 12 tells us that Jesus wins every time. No matter what shape this world is in, no matter what shape this world is in, no matter what shape your life is in, Jesus in him, you will find all the healing and all the peace, and all the hope you could ever want. You need peace right now? You need hope? Joy? It's all, it's all in Jesus Christ. Stop living for yourself. Let's live for him. Despite weakness, death, or opposition, Jesus has authority over all things. And church, he will carry you through every storm. He'll carry you through every prison, every trial. And he will bring you into his kingdom. He's faithful. His faithful hands cannot fail. And there, there will be no more sin. He buried that in the grave. There will be no more death. He rose to life victorious over that. And you will see him. Soon. It's life. Life is a vapor. Oh, that we would spend and be spent for his glory now.
that he would put us, as he did Peter and James, face to face with eternity. And strip away all the petty pursuits, all the trivial anxieties, all the self-serving goals we have. And put within us a resolve to live for God's glory. I love how Luke ends the story. Verse 24. And the word of God increased and multiplied. (laughs) Whose hands won? God's. I'll close with this quote by John Stott. So well summarizes what just happened in Acts 12. He says this. It is in striking contrast to the death of the tyrant that Luke adds one of his summary verses. Indeed, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod's on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Amen. Such, such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be for a time permitted to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, But they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. God's goal is God's glory. He's not about anything else. His power will always prevail. Let us, let us, church, be resolved then to glorify God with our lives. Let us be resolved to hope in him who does not fail, who will always win the day. Let us be bold in telling others this amazing story of God's rescue through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word uh, prayed in the beginning would now just have its effect in our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that by your power you would move and change. Lord, you would adjust. You would reorient our lives if need be. Lord, you would remind us of the hope we have. You would remind us of the peace we have in Jesus Christ. Though we deserved your judgment, Lord, In your mercy, by your grace, you rescued us through Jesus Christ. It is a happy day. We celebrate this day. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus, we've been rescued. We pray these things through his name. Amen.